Assalamualaikum everyone. Thank you once again for joining the Muslim Centric podcast with your host Aman Durani. Today's podcast is one I did with Sheikh Abdul Aziz Ahmed back in 2017 and I'm recording this introduction in Ramadan 2020. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Aziz is somebody who's known across the world as a scholar and educator. He has a fascinating history and biography and in this podcast he talks about getting thrown out of school which again quite surprising as somebody who ended up as a teacher and educationalist. He shares memories of his friendship with Yusuf Islam, who's also known as Cat Stevens, and also we learn lessons from the hardest time of his life and how he coped. So I hope you benefit from this podcast. Please do like, share and subscribe and get in touch on the social media channels with the Muslim-centric podcast. You're listening to Desert Island Gems, an in-depth and intimate interview where we ask our guests to select meaningful gems that they would take to a desert island if they were cast away alone. We hope that the journey inspires you and helps you reflect. So our guest today is Sheikh Abdul Aziz Ahmed. Sheikh Abdul Aziz is a well-known scholar residing in Glasgow. He was born and brought up in Nottingham but has travelled around the world in pursuit of knowledge and has studied under some of the foremost scholars of our time. He is constantly in demand and continues to teach in many countries. He is also an experienced educationalist having completed postgraduate studies in education and teaching and designed the curriculum for perhaps the best known Muslim school in Britain, the Islamia school founded by Yusuf Islam in the early 1980s. He has a particular focus on those with special educational needs. Many years ago he helped to establish the charity Kitaba Islamic Text for the Blind which produces resources for Muslims with disabilities. So Sheikh Abdulaziz, welcome. Thank you. So you've been on quite a journey over the years and I guess you've resided in Glasgow now. Can you tell us a bit about how did you come to end up in Glasgow and make Glasgow your home? That's a very interesting question. It was almost, well, Allah's plan. I was living in America before that and in America you work on short contracts year, two years and then things are appraised and it's a negotiation. If you've done well, push for higher. And if you've not done so well, you can expect that they're going to be cutting your salary. So I got to the end of a contract and I didn't actually decide I wanted to use bargaining trip chip. But I, th- I was thinking about coming back to the UK. I came to Glasgow for a holiday. You know, I love I love Scotland. I've always loved Scotland. And uh, wanted to get a bit of a breather. And then just by chance, I bumped into somebody and they says, come along to the school and um, it just happened Um, I went back to America and says look I'll tidy things up but I'm not negotiating I'm going home and that's how it okay and um, education's always been an important part of your life both as an educational and as a student and teacher of Islamic knowledge why has education been such an important part for you it might be personal experience I I was talking with somebody uh, the other day about my own schooling and I ended school in not the best of ways I was kind of thrown out of school uh, and this, this person couldn't believe it so they said, yeah, you couldn't have been thrown out of school but the truth was I didn't get on that well with school I did get thrown out of school and I spent the last eight months of my schooling years just going to the library because I wasn't in school anymore and that was probably the best thing that happened to me because then I appreciated what learning really was I'm um, going to a library you start with the shelves that are nearest to you which is philosophy and I was reading things I would never have read if I was in school and I really enjoyed it I just enjoyed learning and I needed to be out of school to learn I went back to school and said look okay you throw me out of school but officially I'm still here I want to sit my exams and they kind of says well 
why would you want to sit your exams? You, you, you know, you're not going to pass anything. Well, alhamdulillah, I passed everything. And it was interesting that I'd been thrown out of English two years before that. So I didn't study any English course, but only two people passed that course. And I was one of them and I didn't attend the course. So I went to work because they said, you know, there's no point in going to college or... So I got a job and then I realised that uh, I liked learning. So I went to night school. And when I went to night school, I met people who were really keen on learning. I met a priest who just wanted to improve his studies. There was, And I met people that were really interested in, in learning. And of course, all of my mates were spending, they were in college or in doing A-levels, studying in the day, trying to get working at night and getting drunk at the weekend. And I realised that my life was better because I was working and studying and really learning. And there must be more to education than, than schools. So that brought me back to, to the idea of becoming a teacher. Of course, when I went for the interview, they thought, wow, this guy's completely crazy, and but he's going to make the ideal teacher. And I, and I think my experience has made me want to be a teacher, and, and I've loved teaching. And I think the reason why I've ended up always working with additional needs, and I've, uh, you know, I did work for Muslim schools at the time when, you know, Muslims were needed a little bit of a boost. That experience has helped me to, to um, just care. And I think it's made me a, a better teacher because I realised what education is rather than schooling and there's a big big difference and so can you remember i guess that period when you were thrown out of school because i guess you were doing something different than what everyone else was doing was that was that quite a difficult period was it were you really finding yourself or was it a, a freedom or was it, was, it a? it was finding myself and it was freedom i don't think it was difficult because i was really enjoying finding out who i was and i don't think i knew who i was until that point i think the reason why i was thrown out of school i was in a grammar school a very white English grammar school for rich and clever kids. I mean, it was in the old days of traditional grammar schools. And I wasn't. I was a working class son of a, of immigrants who were Muslim-ish, but not quite knowing what that meant. Certainly not Muslim in the traditional sense, because in the community I lived in, everybody was Pakistani. All the Muslims were Pakistani, and Pakistani meant Muslim. Muslim meant Pakistani. So you're not Pakistani, so you're not Muslim. I wasn't welcome in the Muslim community. I wasn't welcome at school. And, and here that time out gave me an opportunity to go to the mosque on my own, just as me. Fortunately, we had a Bangladeshi imam who was just as isolated from the community as I was and I really clicked with him couldn't speak a word of English but he needed my help because there were so many skinheads in the area so I felt quite useful you know going out and beating up skinheads uh, or not necessarily beating them up all the time but at least protecting the imam and that gave me an identity of, of who I was and also it meant I went to the mosque every single day I went to the mosque every day I went to the library every day I didn't go to school but I was doing the things that were important and it helped me because for months and months my life was built around learning and growing as a human being in the mosque and doing things which count to me which was being who I was in the mosque with this man who needed my help and it was it was really great it was it was a time of discovery and, I, and I'm glad I, I had that so early because a lot of people struggle with identity a lot of people struggle with finding themselves well into their 20s 30s and you know some people are still struggling in middle age but I was thrown into that very early and I think that's helped me to help other people you know I don't get phased by somebody coming to me and saying look I'm addicted to drugs it doesn't mean anything to me I don't it doesn't make me think any anything bad of anybody and that's why most of the people that have come to the dean that I've been able to help have come with me in real difficult situations I mentioned drugs because a lot of people have come to the dean have come from a drug background music background and I think if I hadn't struggled to find out who I was I wouldn't know how difficult it was for other people you know I'm not phased by anything you know I handed a lot of people come to me with all kinds of issues like gay Muslims 
if somebody's gay, they can't talk to anybody. You know, it's just not done. Oh, but Abdullah's, he's, he's going to understand. And that's great. So it sounds like from an early age, there's always been an element where you've been almost um, a bit different and dislocated from, I guess, the, the run of the mill. And you said that you weren't from a Pakistani background. Tell us a bit more about that in terms of what was your background. The thing was, my parents were born in South Africa, obviously during the apartheid regime. Um, technically they were British Um, my ancestry is is German my grandfather fought on the side of the British he became British not because he was really British but because he fought with the British army against his own people against the Nazis in in Italy and in South West Africa so we're not really South African Uh, we're not really British and he became Muslim and married a traditional Arab Malay from Indonesia who settled in who was also South African so we don't I have very mixed origins and none of them are are firm cultures to me also South Africa was an apartheid regime so it was something that we fled because we hated it so there's nothing I can't if South Africa are playing we we support the team that are playing against them well they couldn't play in the apartheid years and and so that was almost self-loathing because I loathed my history and it wasn't until much later that I even got to terms with with that South Africanness and Germanness and Arabness and Indonesianness, and in the end, it just doesn't really make a great deal apart from that was where I came from. My, my brothers and sisters, when when I married Sarah um, a few years ago, she asked them what was he like, and they said he was always a bit strange. <laughs> my sister said that I always remember Abdulaziz looking after people when he was this high, meaning that even though I was very young, I was always very responsible for for others. Uh, and then I look back at, at that, and that was probably the, the, the truth. I was always kind of drawn towards that, helping people. What was it like growing up in terms of your earliest memories, in terms of the household, and what sort of influences were you having around that time? And also, how did your family react when you dropped out of school? So give us a paint us a picture. I think my mother always felt I was strange. She loved me in a very special way. She always knew that I, I had eccentric characteristics. I used to disappear when I was a, only 12 or 13 years old for days on end which nowadays kind of frightens people but I did I just just went um often with with no money where would you go um sometimes I just disappear and go to to the country I go to the Derbyshire Dales uh, camping and and turn up come back safely was that alone or with people usually alone um I also disappeared in Tablil Jamaat as well which obviously is much safer and and was good for me because it, it was my first exposure to to Islam so my parents always felt that I was a little bit strange but that's Allah put me in that position and he protected me looking back I don't you know I'm scared to think of the things that could have happened to me but Allah protected me and put me through a whole kind of um, series of things so by the time I was 16 I'd experienced things that a lot of kids wouldn't have experience and I think that put me in a good position for dealing with what was going to come my way in later years. And was faith very present around in the household and in terms of the family or was it just a cultural thing in terms of it was just part of you? I mean how how present was faith for you? We were um, not brought up as Muslims. Um, we have a mixed background, mixed heritage. So there is Muslim elements in our in our heritage and there's non-Muslim elements in our heritage. So I always knew that there was something Muslim about me, but there wasn't much Muslim practice in the house. And that's why I was kind of pulled. People often used to say, oh, you're half caste. And what they meant by that was you're kind of half Muslim because you've got some kind of Muslimness. And I wanted to define what that was. And that's why I ended up looking. And my brothers and sisters actually said it was me that brought Islam into the house. I was the one that went out, found out about things at a very, very early age. And then my father was intrigued almost, why is my son so crazy? And I just sat down and said, no, I've been going to Blirchamat. He said, wow, 
can I come? So we went off together and it really kind of bonded us. And then it was like two Muslims in the house. And then my mother obviously is Muslim, but she also started to, to grow. And slowly, everybody over the years came to, to, and some it took many, many years. And, and others, it, it was my, my younger brother, for example, kind of grew up in my shadow. Yeah, I took him away when he was about 15 or 16 to Tunisia and then out into the desert in Algeria. But by this time, our parents kind of just expected that, that of me. And so let's come on to your first item that you've chosen. Can you tell us a bit about your first choice and why you've chosen it? Yeah, I think Surat al-Rahman has a special place and that kind of links to what, what I've just said about where I grew up. We became very close, me and my father, almost to the exclusion of everybody else in the house. Well, it, it was in, in my brother and sister's mind to their exclusion. And I, and I can understand the difficulties that had caused, but we were both on a journey, me and my father, and my brothers and sisters were struggling in the way that I was struggling. Before that, my father was unwell. He had several heart attacks. And so we knew, you know, death is around the corner. And the, the one of his heart attacks came at about the time when my sister died. And I was just starting to express these strange tendencies. How old would you have been? I was, when my sister died, I was about seven. And it was about 11 or 12 when I started to, to start doing strange things. So about 11 or 12, that's when me and my father started to get really close. But by the time I was about 14 or 15, I was kind of independent, really learning the dean on my own. And obviously my father, every, he knew a lot and it was coming back to him. And then one day he became very ill. It was Ramadan and the two of us were praying and um, my mother joined us. Ramadan was a time when my mother was, was, was part of this trio. And sometimes my father would force everybody else against their will. But there was one day that's just the three of us praying and uh, he wasn't well so he asked me to lead the prayer and I was about 15 or so uh, and of course he'd never hear, heard me read Quran so I stood and led the prayer and I read Surah Rahman and then I left and uh, I knew that it had affected my dad but I didn't know how and the reason I read Surah Rahman was because a year or so before that I came in and he was reading Surah Rahman and it just hit me this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard my father reading this surah is just so beautiful and, and actually it was very easy to learn because it just kind of grew from that experience of sitting here have just almost by chance hearing him and then it was like a year later I got the opportunity to read it to him and I, it was almost deliberate and so when I left the room I could see it, it had affected him but I didn't talk about it again and it wasn't until many many years later that I knew what happened that day he did pass away a few months later and um, alhamdulillah my mother lived a few more years 
and she became ill again in Ramadan. And the month of Ramadan I spent with her, literally by her bedside. I didn't move. And I used to read Quran to her while she was in a coma. And uh, it was really strange because she was in a coma. But as soon as I stopped reading, her face would change a little to show that she knew. And so it was a beautiful month. But shortly before, when she was in a sort of semi-coma, I led this prayer for her and I read Surah Rahman. And then she told me what happened that day. She said, do you remember the day you read this to my to your dad? I said, yeah, I do. It was it was special for me. He says, you don't know how special it was to him. He just lay on the bed after that and he didn't move. And then he turned to her and he says, now I'm ready to die. She told me that story and she says, now I'm ready to die. And so Surah Tahman for me will always be associated with my parents. If I, if anything happens in my life, the one thing that I hope will be, I can say I was good, was that my parents left the world and they, they were happy with it. And the only proof that I've got is that when I read Surah Al-Rahman they said now I'm ready to die so it's, it's very special for me and what do you think he meant by that when he said that I think I think he was content that he's got a legacy I think that was part of he knew I was there leading the prayer for him and if he dies that day he's left a son and everyone has to die and he knew that we all know that but I think he felt proud and um, my mother was very content that she was dying and that she was going to die in Ramadan and she knew it was a matter of days. I think I felt that she was content being connected to the Qur'an um, and that's what, what Surah Al-Rahman meant to both of them. So let's fast forward a little bit and I guess this pursuit of education and teaching and tell us how you ended up with Islamia School and Yusuf Islam, it was Cat Stevens. Tell us about that whole journey. Was it the wild 70s and 80s? Yeah, it was the, the 80s. So um, I was doing a, a lot of tutoring of Muslims. Uh, and also the school I was working in in Leicester was, it had a large Muslim population. And I just felt that I wasn't doing enough for the Muslim community. And at the time, um, I met Yusuf and I met a few other people associated with what was then the growing Muslim school scene. I just felt that maybe I should just join this group of people. I think they, they, they seem to have a plan, but they don't seem to have many professional teachers with them. And I think I could I could contribute to this. And that's really all that happened. I just decided I went down to see them and they said, yeah, can you start on Monday? So what were, what were they doing or what was... Yusuf what was, was just... Yeah, had he left he, he'd, the um, music scene and... No, he'd left the music scene. Had you um, been a Cat Stevens fan? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, we became close friends um, over the years. There was a couple of times, I mean, for example, when my mother died, one of the one of the most moving things was he called, we, we were quite close, and he, we, he called me up and he said, so so how is she? And I says, I don't think she's going to be here much longer. I think it's, we're talking of days now. So he says, can I see her tomorrow? He says, of course you can, you can see her any time you like. And it was a Jummah, and it was a Muslim aid day, and he had loads and loads of appointments, and he just disappeared. And I didn't know until somebody phoned me and says, now where is Yusuf Islam? And I says, he's here with me. I says, what? They were like really furious because he just kind of left everything to come and spend a couple of hours with my mum. And then I remembered, actually the same thing happened with his mum because his mum had died the year before. And again, you know, I was, alhamdulillah, I was blessed to, to, to go and, and see them and spend a bit of time before his mum passed away. And so we did become quite close. We travelled a lot. We travelled to South Africa, Turkey, around Europe, around Britain a lot. So we did become quite quite close. I was never a fan of his, but I did admire him. And the things that I admired about him, he always used to hide there was a time in South Africa where we were doing an interview and he just started quoting some of his songs. And the guy, the lady that was interviewing him was just obviously was a mad Cat Stevens fan. And then I just wished, why don't you let other people see this? You know, why do you, why have you become 
something in public. And I knew why, because he was scared. He, he was scared of his past. He hated his past. He was scared of people ripping him off. He was scared of going into haram. So he put up this massive wall. And when he started to speak, then I thought, yeah, I didn't quite like your music before, but I admire it now. And I remember one occasion, um, we were just sitting on, on a service station on the M40 or M6 on the way to Birmingham. And Jimi Hendrix came over the, uh, the, the, uh, the tunnel, it's a song. And he just started talking about his time with Jimi Hendrix, because Jimi Hendrix, his first tour was with Jimi Hendrix in 1967. And I just thought, I wish people knew you as a human being instead of as a, as a sheikh, because you're such a nice guy. And alhamdulillah, over the years, he has allowed people in. And you, when you see him now, it's a very different Yusuf to the Yusuf that was running the school. He's, that's the real Yusuf, a really nice guy, talented. And he's connected to his past now. He's not ashamed of what happened in the past. He knows what was good in there and he knows what was bad. And there's a big lesson in that as well. So we had a lot of runnings. There was a time where we almost hit each other. You have to tell us about that. Uh, and it was really good, actually, because he said something. And I don't lose my temper often, but he, I snapped and I got up and I was about to hit him. And somebody stopped me. And then I told Yusuf, you're lucky he stopped me because I would have done it. And he turned around and he hugged me because he knew I, how sincere I was. And that was kind of proof of my sincerity and everything I was dealing with because you upset me I'll hit you and if I say I work with you I love you I mean it do you remember Sweet. what the issue was that got you so I, angry was it a big thing or was it it was a small thing but it, it, it touched a nerve yeah. and I think he knew it touched a nerve it was out of order but he also understood the sensitivity mm. of it touching the nerve and I think he was quite almost happy because I never put him on a pedestal I, I, lo I respect him I, I, I love him dearly and I respect him greatly but I never put him on a pedestal and when I felt he was wrong I told him he knew that and I think he respected that but I don't think he ever thought I would hit him and have you kept in touch over the years we have, to, we have to not as, not as much as what I would have liked when I was in America we called regularly and he came up to Glasgow a couple of times and we, we, we spent a bit of time here and I've, I've seen him in Dubai but our lives have kind of gone gone different ways but I still love him greatly and respect him a great deal and this this group in the 80s that were trying to work on this school and I mean, tell us what, what, what were you trying to achieve what was the driver and what was the scene like at the time at the time it was mainly the, the Marabi Tunara a group who were then based in Norwich who were mainly English converts to Islam they were looking for a, an Islam which met their needs and to some extent they'd almost rejected the, the traditional Islam of the vast majority were mainly from Pakistan and Arab countries. So they were finding themselves as well. A lot of them were ex-hippies. Like most of them were ex-hippies. And, and I kind of fitted into that crowd quite nicely. I enjoyed their company. It was very stimulating. And we had crazy ideas about education. And among those was to, to, to build a, a Muslim school. And it was exciting at the time. The project, I don't think reached the fruition that I would have wanted it to go into. The schools then expanded and developed all over the country and many of those schools became ghetto schools and that's not what we were trying to do and that's really why I left Islamic education or Muslim education. And I'm not, I'm not against Muslim schools but I'm against bad schools. If Muslim schools are good, you know, I support them and if they're not good, I think we should close them down and, and not have substandard education for anybody. So let's go to your next piece that you've chosen. The next thing is a, a, something called Mawlid al-Daybai. Now that, that's... Um, it's a biography of the Prophet And what I was thinking was, I really want to take a seerah with me, a book of seerah, because the life of the Prophet is really crucial for us to understand anything about our own journey. The word seerah means journey. So a seerah is not a biography of the Prophet.
Prophet It's the journey of the Prophet And we call it Asira because it is the journey. We understand our journey better if we can reflect on the ultimate journey, which is the, the journey of the Messenger Now when, when uh, you asked me to think of eight items, I was thinking, now should I take a copy of the Seerah? And which Seerah would it be? Would it be Arabic? Would it be English? If it was English, it would have been Martin Ling's. But I felt that the desert island, I need to take as much light things as possible. And the Mawlid Adaybae is a very short text and it's in Arabic, which it suits me and it's very simple. And it's something that can be read as a litany, as a, a word. You can just read it from beginning to end, almost as an act of worship because it's very poetic, it's very beautiful. And that suits me better. There's a, an upside and a downside to the concept of Mawlid. Um, and that's also a supposed part of my journey. Mawlid is contentious. The whole idea of celebrating the birth of the Prophet is, is in terms of the religion is something which has become divisive. And and I, I recognise that. And that's understanding that has, has helped me to understand the divisions. Because there was a time when I would have read the Mawlid al-Daybai and been associated with a group because I read it. Then that would attract enemies because other people would say it's an innovation. And that's not what the, the, the whole concept of the Mawlid is. The Mawlid is a simple way of reading the biography. And I actually withdrew from reading Mawlid because I didn't like that division. And I didn't like the people that were reading Mawlid and then fighting the people that weren't doing Mawlid. And I didn't like the people that were fighting the Mawlid. So I just kind of withdrew from the whole thing. I just didn't go to Mawlid. I didn't promote them. I didn't go anywhere near the people that were doing them just because I felt it was sectarian and I still feel that that is, is problematic and that's why I don't do any kind of molded in that strict sense of the word but in recent years I've reconnected with the Sira much more closely and I've found a lot more solace in in studying the seerah and um, and part of that was because I left doing molded so to speak because that was for me was sectarian it was ritualistic it wasn't lifting me and I left that to study the seerah and as I studied the seerah more and more then I began to realize actually the molded is a simple version of the seerah which you can read very quickly and revise and now coming back to the molded of Debei, I realized that actually there's a real beauty in it that I think I would want to keep whatever happens. And if I'm on my own in, on a desert island, that's probably protecting me from, from falling into sectarian division because it will just be me. And that's why I've kind of chosen that. Otherwise, I would have chosen a seerah. And I think I have seen a lot more benefit in my own life after leaving, so to speak, that um, sectarian issue and focusing on just on the Prophet in whatever way people do. So if people read the seerah, great. If they read Mawlid, great. As long as you connect to the Prophet so Sheikh Abdulaziz, you've spent um, many years in the pursuit of education and scholarship and uh, Islamic knowledge. Are there particular qualities of some of the scholars you have studied with that stand out for you or that have particularly resonated over the years? And what is it about them that you know, you've taken and internalised and tried to capture some of over the years? Scholars that have affected me the most have been the ones that are the most humble, the ones that are the most kind. And if I found an imam or a scholar that's nice, that's actually very kind and warm and approachable, then I have a natural affinity to that person. And it's a, it's a quality that I want to, to try and inculcate in myself. So it's not just learning knowledge, it's, it's learning the behaviour of somebody. So I've always looked and I've always been attracted to beautiful people. Like, the, for example, the first person I mentioned was this Bangladeshi imam. We couldn't speak. He didn't speak English. I didn't speak Bangladeshi. He couldn't speak Urdu, so he didn't even speak with the community. But there was something there. He was just a very, very beautiful man. And at the Quran, in him came out in his face if you know what I mean you could see the Quran in the way he walked in the way he lived and when I see a scholar if I can see 
that behavior in them, then that's what attracts me. And it's it's learning from their behavior. It's not just what do they teach you, but how do they do things? How do they sit? How do they pray? How do they talk? How do they smile? And these are the kind of things that I, I pick up on and um, try my best to, to implement in my own life. And are there any scholars that you felt have had the greatest impact on your life? The, the greatest scholar is probably a scholar called Al-Habib Ahmed Mashur Al-Haddad, who impacted on, on thousands and thousands of people's lives. He, there's probably 100,000 people became Muslim through him. You know, he was one of the last great dais who actually went out just to meet people. You know, he just he just wanted to, to meet people and be with people and not necessarily go out and convert people, but be with them so that they can learn about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through what he says and what he does. And people just just embraced Islam, just looking at him sometimes. And and that's, he probably was the greatest influence on me. And after he passed away, there was a period where I, I didn't find anything like that. I found teachers and I, I learned from a lot of people. But Where was he? He lived in Jeddah in East Africa. Okay. He used to be, he used to travel six months of the year in, in, in the Hijaz and six months in, in Kenya. Um, and then towards the end of his life, all of his life was in the Hijaz. He couldn't travel anymore. And I saw him in both places. He was very different in each one of them. In, in Kenya, he was very approachable. His room went straight on to the street um, and he just opened the door anybody that walked past could just literally walk into his into his room and they had it had a curtain so if there was somebody in and he wanted a bit of privacy the curtain would come down and people would know that there's somebody in they just then they would just say hodi which is the Swahili kind of traditional for saying, can I come in? And this didn't, this was open to anybody. And a lot of the time, just non-Muslims would walk down the street, just walk in there, drink tea and go. And it was, that was what he was like. They're very, very open, very approachable. In Jeddah, he was a scholar. Um, he was seen as a scholar. And I saw him much more in a, in the classic teaching sense. And even when he wasn't giving durus, he was welcoming guests. So I'd be sitting there and um, Sheikh al-Islam of uh, Egypt, Imam al-Azhar, would just walk in. President of Tanzania just walked in. The president of the Comor island just just walked in you know the pakistani ambassador to saudi Arabia just just walked in and but you saw these two different sides of him this the great scholar who was also great uh, hospitable and whether it was the president or it was the cleaner you know they were both welcome and treated well and then in in africa where you know he was just like completely open so he'd be sitting there with his shirt and his his, his dhoti and you wouldn't imagine that this man is is one of the most learned people on the on the earth and he'd be sitting drinking tea with some, some sikh lady who just wanted a cup of tea <laughs> And, he was so, the biggest influence, and right? some people say that a certain caliber of scholars, you know, as the years go past, we seem to be losing them. And do you think that's true in terms of the caliber of, I guess, the scholarship and people, scholars that are now? Is, is there a different flavor to that than maybe over the last few decades? I, th- I think in terms of knowledge, the scholarship is still high. I mean, there are still a lot of very learned people. When it comes to the subtleties of Dawah, I think that's gone. There are very few people that have that those qualities. I'll give you an example is Sheikh Al-Habib Ali Jeffrey, another teacher of mine, and he also grew up in Jeddah at the time I was there. So his teachers are my teachers. Now he's a great scholar and he said, you know, he appears regularly on TV and things. But one of the qualities that he has that, that stands out in my mind, makes him different and connects him to the old school in my view, was one day he was on Heathrow Airport about to leave and he said to the students, you know, you're so lucky. Just look around you how many non-Muslims there are. You know, I live in, in Yemen, Dubai, Egypt. We don't have so many opportunities. And one of the guys sort of said, Habib, you know, it's, it's not so easy, you know, living in a country like this. Being in a non-Muslim country is not. He says, how? He says, you know, you don't just walk up to people and make da'wah, you know. It's, that's not how it works here. He says, why? 
And he says, it doesn't happen like that. He says, watch. So you see that guy over there? And there was a guy with tattoos and earrings and complete, um, <laughs> what you'd say up here, a Ned. Um, but, you know, he was he was like the least kind of approachable person. He says, just go up to him and say, I want to talk to him. So they thought, what do we do now? So they just went up to this random guy in, this, in, in the airport and says, we have a guest and he wants to talk to you. And of course, Habib doesn't speak English. So he came up and they just started talking. And then afterwards he says, you know, here's my telephone number. And, um, you know, these guys take their numbers as well. And you know, anytime you'd like to talk to us, I'd love to meet him. It was really nice meeting you. And he left. And the guy turned around to the Muslims and said, you know, he's a really nice guy. I'd really like to meet him again. And, you know, can we meet? And that quality of just being a human being, speaking to other human beings is what many of us have lost. And, and we have scholarship, but there's not that many people who've got that kind of, those kind of qualities. And when you find them, spend time with them because their knowledge is deeper because they have knowledge, but it's applied knowledge because it's a human interactive knowledge. And that's really what I, I look for and I wish I had. So tell us about your next item that you take with you. Actually, the next two go together. One is um, a book called the Bidayat al-Hidayah, Beginning of Guidance, and there's a, the Hadith al-Awwaliyah. These are two things that we, when we find a, when we find a teacher, traditionally, we would go and ask permission to study with them. We're not talking about going to a university and enrolling. Traditionally, this is how you would you would find a scholar, go to that scholar, and, and ask to become a student. And the way that we would do this would often be to ask if we could read Bidayat al-Hidayah, Beginning of Guidance. And the reason why this is important is because in the Beginning of Guidance, the book tells you the very very first part of it talks about intention of study and it warns people that these are the blessings if you study the angels will make make supplication for you even the fish in the sea will supplicate for you and then it but it says but beware because it also says that there's a person who'll be in the gar in the jahannam whose intestines will be thrown out into the out of his body and he'll be pushing a, a grinding wheel round and round in a circle and his the stench that will come from his the, his intestines his stomach will be a part of the torment to people in the jahannam so he's actually part of the punishment of others and they'll say why is this man here you know why are we being punished by being in his company and who is he and they say he's a scholar who called people to huck but didn't do it himself and then it says so be careful about your studies be sincere and then it starts the book the book's called the beginning of guidance and it says the beginning of guidance in effect is taqwa righteousness but also the end of guidance is righteousness so the beginning of guidance is to be good and the whole purpose of studying is to be better and um, Imam al-Ghazali says he says here I'm pointing to you indicating to you what the beginning of guidance is beginning of guidance is inward taqwa and outward knowledge and then the end of knowledge is inward taqwa and outward taqwa and then this is where Imam al-Ghazali says I'm telling you my student this and you traditionally when you go to a student to a sheikh you would read this and when you get to that point often the sheikh will stop for example my sheikh uh, one of my sheikhs Sheikh Abdul Rahman Khitami he'll stop he says, And now I'm indicating to you, Ya Abdulaziz, just as my teacher indicated to me, and then he'll mention his name, Habib Umar bin all the way up to Imam al-Ghazali, Imam al-Ghazali ilayhi. And then he says, okay. So when he says that, he's accepting you as a student, but at the same time, he's reminding you of who you are. And the bond you now have with him connects you to the, the book. And it connects you to the to Imam al-Ghazali. Then after that, you study whatever he tells you. 
But every every teacher that I've studied with, I've done this with. So Alhamdulillah, in my in my copy of Bidaitul Hidayah, I have I read this to so and so on such and such a day, and I read it to so and so on such and such a day. So Alhamdulillah, inshallah, one day when I I leave the world, hopefully the book will be there, and people will have that connection. And those people that have studied with me, I can say, and here I indicate to you the beginning of guidance, as I've been indicated by the following, and there's the list of people. So it connects you. The second thing is a, is a, is a hadith called a hadith al awwaliyah which traditionally when you study hadith this is the first hadith you study and this tradition of studying it before you study anything else goes all the way back to Sufyan ibn Uyayna who was a, a tabi so it's a very early generation and he this was the first hadith that he t- taught to his students and then that was the first hadith they taught to their students the first hadith so it became known as the first hadith and when you go to a student a teacher to teach you hadith usually the first hadith if he's got this chain of transmission, would be this one. So alhamdulillah, I've heard this as my first hadith from a number of teachers. And the reason why it's important is because the hadith, and that's I'll, I'll relate it to you, is, is that it's the first hadith that I studied under a number of mashaykh. It's based on a connection to Sufyan ibn Uyayn, who heard from Aqabus, who heard from Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, who heard from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, who said, Ar-Rahimun yarhamahum ar-Rahman, irhamuman fil-ard, yarhamukum. He says that the merciful ones, the most merciful, will show mercy to them. So show mercy to those on the earth, and the one who is in the skies, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again, is metaphoric, not physical, will show mercy to you. So when you start this as this is the very, very first hadith you study, it's about mercy. And it's important when you put these two together that you are humility and mercy is what you're looking for. And then you study everything else. Because if you start with mercy, and that's why the Quran begins, Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. And that's why hadith should start with Rahmah. And and it's it's very important to me. And if I'm going to study any hadith, that's probably the one I start with. And I was wondering what hadith collection can I take as my eight items. And any collection of hadith would be good. Probably the 40 hadith would have been the one I would have taken yeah. if it was slightly bigger and Maybe Riyadh Salihin if it was bigger than so you that. You need to keep yourself busy though, I guess. <laughs> uh, but if I could only take one hadith, yeah. then this would be the one. Thank you. Sheikh Abdulaziz, one of the significant projects that you've been involved in and, and well known for over the years is to do with Kitaba the Islamic text for the blind and you've also written a book about Imran Sabr uh, living with blindness just tell us a bit about how that all came about and your passion for that and I know Imran had a very special place for you so could you share some of that with us going back to kind of my background is I've always been with the underdog so to speak and um, that's part of me when I came to Glasgow I heard about Imran as a, a young man that was just very keen to, to learn and, and very connected to the, to the dean, but not really getting the support maybe that he, he needed. It's interesting, it was actually through Radio Ramadan that he, he did start to make a, his own journey. One day he called into Radio Ramadan, of course he used to use, a, he had a tracheostomy, so he used to speak through a, 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 a tube and a pipe on his, on his, on his voice box. And some, somebody thought it was, it was a prank when he called in and he was really frustrated and somebody else called him on his behalf and said no that was that's how he speaks and um, alhamdulillah the brothers came to him afterwards to see him and that made it that was a big turning point in his life and that's one of the reasons why I you know I respect all of you at Radio Ramadan because if that's the only thing that you ever did then it was a massive thing and of course you've done many more things but alhamdulillah that set him off on a journey to to study the dean more we became friends and then he asked me to to work with him on a charity called Ethnic Enable and uh, we worked together working on all types of disability and alhamdulillah it was it was successful it was it was working well it was keeping him happy but he wanted to focus on himself 
his own spiritual development, which we were kind of doing anyway. I was studying with him and reading to him on a daily basis. And he said he wished he could share this. So we just decided to really focus on people who were blind. We got a few blind people around from Glasgow and elsewhere and, and just set up this project Islamic text for the blind and it just grew and it grew and it grew and then sadly he, he passed away but with his death brought an even greater impetus for me and really needed to push to to fulfill his vision and that's writing living with blindness helped me deal with his death because we were very very close the last six months of his life I, I very rarely left him I went to work I I spent the nights with him he had a lot of illnesses yeah he had uh, several several his condition was complex. He had uh, he had only one lung. He had uh, he was blind. He had weaknesses in in his in his in his body uh, just from growing up with 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 so many disabilities and not being able to breathe. And therefore, he didn't develop the strength that, that he needed. He was prone to infections. And he, and Handel, he he lived he, he as far as I know the oldest person that lived with his condition. He lived to to thirty uh, thirty one actually. So nobody's lived that long this condition so far although alhamdulillah we have a sister that's looking very very strong and and um, inshallah she's going to beat him and he's also going to be part of kitab as well <laughs> inshallah. Uh, and then we just we just grew from that the kitab then took a bit of a break um partly because my own life went through through a bit of turmoil but inshallah i'm coming to the end of that turmoil a little bit and again i'm kind of renewed in my desire to support people and disabled people in particular and it's about to be re-established inshallah and what sort of things were you doing? Were you were you hoping to do in terms of what sort? Because I know you produce a lot of materials yeah. and resources and giving these people a voice we, as well. We did um we did a lot of advocacy work, um, fighting for individuals. Produced books in Braille, audio books. We produced. We had an accessible website which had a lot of information on blindness and on Islam. We had a couple of Umrah trips where we took blind people and then later wheelchair users to, to Mecca. We took a, a group to Spain for a cultural trip, which blind and and, and uh, sighted people. So we could live together for a week. The sighted people could learn about blindness and the blind people could be supported by sighted people to enjoy a trip to Spain. Yeah, the, we did did a lot of things, like we ran courses for sighted people, courses for blind people. And hopefully, inshallah, we'll, we'll get back to, to that as well. So clearly, books have been such an important part of your life, from being thrown out of school and spending time in the library. And inshallah, may Allah give you success with all the uh, future plans you have. So tell us about your next item that you've chosen. The next item is a, is a, is a poem... Um, which is written on a on an island in East Africa. There was an iron called Pata, which was a very very sophisticated and developed culture. Where at a time where the Queen of England was signing her name with a thumb thumbprint because she was illiterate, everybody on Pata had flushing toilets. Yeah, so the, the culture was very very advanced. They had great navigational skills. They they ruled a lot of the of the Indian Ocean and that by doing that. And then it fell into demise. Uh, it was also Islamically a very powerful cultural city. And now it's nothing. It's it's a ruin. And as it reached ruin there was a a, um, a, a scholar named uh, Sayyid Abdullah bin Ali bin Nasir wrote a poem about the demise of, of Pata and it was called Al Inkishaf. It's written in Swahili but it's not about the demise of it's about the demise of the human being it's about the soul it's about life it tell, tells you a great deal and and every once in a while i've gone back to pata uh more often to the to the book to the poem and just reflected on it and it, it is a very beautiful poem. i'll read a bit of the translation perhaps and do you know swahili as well i i i knew swahili quite well i did swahili at university so but we'll hear some of the english inshallah so he's ta- talking about who was in the city 
and what happened to them and this is for all of us he says they have become food for insects and for worms termites and ants devour and bore them through their bodies are eroded venomous snakes and scorpions coil in the cavities so here he's talking about what happened to the people and that's what's going to happen to each one of us he also talks about the beauty of the city and how luxurious the the the, the, their palaces were he says their light and mansions echo emptily high in the painted rafters flutter bats there are no murmurings no happy shouts on uncarved bedsteads spiders spin their webs and that's what our dunya is that's what the dunya is no matter how powerful you are how rich you are how beautiful your home is it's nothing and every once in a while we're reminded of that you know you lose everything and then you start to appreciate what you have which is your connection with your lord and inkishaf is a is a poem which um it's translated as the catechism of the soul and it's a really beautiful um, piece of literature and a really beautiful poem thank you very much so you've spent um long periods recently in hospital and around health and ill people and sick people has that changed the way that you see the world and see people very much so um and it, it's interesting that when i read that um in Kishafi, which we've just mentioned it really means as i read it now it means a lot more because alhamdulillah we had everything um, alhamdulillah I was uh, I, I got married about four years ago um, or remarried um, and alhamdulillah we, we seemed to have everything I had a young beautiful wife that I was very happy with we had a young child um, nice house and overnight it disappeared my wife was in intensive care and very very close to death and I was literally held, left holding the baby at a time when whatever I had in my life didn't really matter anymore what, what counts anymore in your life you know if you've got if you lose the things that matter then all the other things don't really matter and they include your job your house I lost my job as well at the same time and I remember going well Sarah was in intensive care and I went to work they called me in and they said sorry we have some bad news we've deleted your post I said fine and I left and they were kind of shocked I said do what you like my wife's in intensive care and you know I've got more important things to worry about alhamdulillah things have worked out better she recovered from intensive care she's still alhamdulillah needs a lot of care and help um it has changed me a lot and, and that poem is one of the things that kind of emphasizes that we're all going to die and she's taught me a lot she's taught me a great deal in her patience and the way that she's faced coming so close to death and knowing that death being told very straight by a doctor we don't expect to see you next year and for her to just accept it so gracefully really taught me a lot and i've learned a great deal from her i also learned a lot from being in hospital because i saw people die as i was sitting with sarah people would come in and they didn't and people came in and they gave birth so I, I was there for two of my close friends wonderful people and, and and their birth they don't know how much i love them and their children because of what happened and likewise we buried a couple of people who came in after she did and didn't come out so it did make a big difference to me yeah. and how have you coped during these most difficult times what's kept you going or what pulled, pulled you through alhamdulillah the, perhaps the last the last thing that the, the, the eighth item on, on the list there it's one of the things that's helped him. It's a, it's a poem. It's a, it's a dua. And um, it's called Qad Kafani Il Murabbi. Among the meanings of this is, in there it says, Qad Kafani Il Murabbi Min Su'ali Wa Akhtiyari Fa Dua'i Shahidun Li Biftiqari Your knowledge of my state and what's going on inside me is sufficient. I don't need to tell you what's going on. And my supplication is actually my state of not being able to ask you what I want because you know. And this is actually bearing witness to how weak and in need I am and one of the things I've learned from from this was how much I needed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we know we need Allah but this really forced me to to be totally alone you know Ramadan is a tough time 
And last Ramadan, I spent the whole month looking after a baby alone. And he was my only company for iftar, for suhoor. And then in the daytime, I went to see a, a young lady who, who was, was dying. And I felt very alone. And I was very alone, very, very alone. And, and that helped me relate to who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. But it also helped me to relate to other people because in my time of need, the people that I thought would come to my need didn't come. And I became angry. But the thing I learned from that was Allah sent other people. And when he sent them, I realized it's Allah that does it, not the people. But those people that came, they came at a time that I needed them. And the love that I have for them was a different kind of love. When Sarah asked my sister what was I like as a child, she said everybody used to need Abdulaziz. Everyone used to go to him for help. And that's true. From very young, I was there for everybody. And then I got to this point when she was very sick where I had nobody and nobody came to my help. And then they did. And when I asked somebody, can you do this for me? It was almost liberating to say, I need you. And the second time I turned to somebody and says, I need you, can you do this for me? It was really liberating because now it's not people needing me. It's me needing people and me not and being able to just turn to them. And when they say, yeah, I'll help you, that meant so much to me because it, it, it helped me deal with who I am, helped me deal with my Lord, and it helped me deal with people around me. And now I have no qualms in if I need somebody, if I need something, I'll turn to my friends and say, I need this. And that's what often sometimes people say that the people that are always the helpers or positions of leadership or there for others, often there's nobody there for them, you know, and often that gets forgotten about, isn't it? And I guess... Yeah, it, it does. And also, because I'd, I'd come through a difficult time before marrying Sarah, where, and I realised, I should be speaking to you about this, but you know it better than me, but it's something that we overlook when we're involved in the caring professions, to look after yourself, because we care so much. And I had suffered a great deal in my own personal life and my own mental health from dealing with other people's mental health and it wasn't until a psychologist I was working with just turned to me and she says but you know what they say on the airplanes put on your own mask before helping others and it, it was such a simple thing she said to me then I realized I need help and alhamdulillah I, I started to get help and I started to help myself and that's what we need to, to do with each other and that's that's one thing that's very very important to our communities is to make sure that we do support each other and when people are caring for others they need to get look after themselves but they also need to be, find people to care for them especially when they're caring in a structured way and this is one of the things I learned about structure is that you know you can't do it on your own people come into my life I help them but really unless there's a structure for helping me it's just random and alhamdulillah random is good people's lives change and alhamdulillah I know people have come to me and they say they've say, I saved their lives literally you know, they were on the verge of suicide and they're not but it's still random and for us to really really move as a community we have to move away from random to organised and when it comes to mental health when it comes to caring for people when it comes to supporting people for the kind of people I was talking about drug addicts homosexuals people struggling with their sexuality people who are abused people with disabilities if we don't structure our community to support them you know it's going to be random mm. for many many years and generations perhaps so let's go on to your next item the next item is a is a book of aphorisms by Imam Ibn Atayil al-Sakandari. And really it's just a collection of, of wise sayings. But obviously Ibn, Ibn Atayil al-Sakandari was a, a, a great scholar of Islam. He was a Hafiz Qur'an, Hafiz Hadith, and a great faqih. So he was a great scholar. So when he's wise sayings, it's drawn from the Qur'an and the Sunnah and put into into what we call hikam. And a hikmah, the, the Arabic word hikmah means a wisdom, but it means that which strikes 
the the bullseye so to speak that which goes straight to the point so it's something which is very simple and this book of 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 Hikam is literally a text which people have traveled alone with they, there was one scholar called Ahmed Zarouk who traveled the, through the desert traveled from Morocco to Hajj and back again and the only thing he had was the Quran which he'd memorized anyway and the Hikam and he wrote 27 commentaries during his life every time he, he, he'd go through a new phase in his life he'd write a new commentary so he traveled with this book and, and it's translated into English there's a couple of translations but um, I'll just read one Hikma, so to speak, just to give you a flavor of what it is. It's, he says, لا تصحب من لن ينهدك حاله ولا يدلك على الله مقاله Don't keep company with one whose state doesn't lift you or whose words do not direct you towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's saying keep good company, but he's also defining what company is. When you're with them, if it makes you feel closer to Allah, they're good company. And if it doesn't, they're not good company. And if their words point you back towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that means their words are useful. And it might not be big words. So when you go to a class and the, the, they give you lots and lots of lectures and lots of lots of information, if those words don't want you to go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Toba, then you haven't got anything. And, and sometimes it's very simple things. And simple company makes, makes a, a big difference. Tell us a bit about what makes you laugh and how do you relax? Because obviously we've talked a lot about things when, it, when when times are difficult, but there's ups and downs in life, isn't there? So what makes you laugh? What helps you relax? Alhamdulillah, my, my little two-year-old keeps keeps me relaxed and um, he makes me laugh a great deal. My life has become quite insular over the last year or so and, and, and I enjoy these little pleasures. Um, and I think that's important is that little things, if you can just enjoy them. I like walking and, I, and one of the things I've learned from Sarah's illness is that I'll give you an example. When we did come out of hospital and we came to this flat, of course, we lived on a second floor flat before we moved here and she couldn't come out of hospital because she can't, she wouldn't be able to get up two flights of stairs. So we got a new place, took a bit of time. So handling everything fitted into place and with oxygen, she was able to come home. And I remember stopping on the way because there's no food and we bought chicken and chips and we came home and we had chicken and chips on the floor, the three of us. And it was the best meal I can remember. <laughs> it was the meal of kings. And I look back and I think it probably was not even very nice, but it was the meal of kings. And since then, I've learned a lot because every once in a while, there's a re- just a jolt of a reminder that something very, very small should make you happy, like pushing your dreams on the swing. Or the other day we went, to, I don't know if I should be advertising, we went to a Syrian uh, pie shop and I just said, no, I'm sure it's going to be nice. I said, I'm tired. I, I, I don't have enough oxygen. And, you know, she's... You know, we were out on the road. I said, no, just, we'll pop in there. Just, you can sit. And, and she had this pie in. And you just see her face afterwards because this pie brought such tremendous joy. And I think that's what we need to do is we just need to find the joy in everything. And it can be in music. It can be in, in books. It can be in walking. But you have to find the joy. And that's what really is, is important. And that's probably the last thing was the, the Mark Twain. Yep, your last item. Um, Mark Twain. I, I love Mark Twain. He's, he's a great writer. I just really enjoy his books. But probably in the context of what we've been saying and why this is important is because it reminds me of a very famous and very important hadith. The Prophet was sitting in the company of some of the companions and they were reading Quran to him and they stopped and then they started reciting poetry to him. And Abu Bakr al-Siddiq had walked in at this point and he, he was kind of annoyed. And he turned to them and he says, A Quran wa shair. He says, you, you read Quran and poetry? You're like you're kind of rebuking them. And the Prophet turned to him and he says, Sa'atan, Sa'atan. Literally means an hour, an hour. But 
what it means in this context. There's a time for this and a time for that. And that's why it's important that we organize our time, Saturn, Saturn. There must be a time in our lives where we relax, where we enjoy doing things which are not Quranic, but are permitted. So permitted music, um, permitted sports, all the things that are there within the Sharia, which are not haram, you should do. You should enjoy, relax, enjoy them because they will make you appreciate the Quran better. And when you, when I read books like Mark, Mark Twain and everything, I enjoy them. And then when I come back to the Quran, I read, this is the Quran. <laughs> you, know, you know, Mark Twain is Mark Twain, but this is the Quran. Whereas if you read the Quran and nothing else, you don't always appreciate it that well. And that's why Saturn, Saturn, and, and I, I mean, Mark Twain's my thing, but everybody should find their own Mark Twain. Everybody should find their own thing to relax with, to enjoy. And if it's, as long as it's permitted, do it. And is there a, a favourite work of Mark Twain in particular? Um, probably the one that I like the most is um, Connecticut Cowboy in the Court of King Arthur. It's, it's about, it's a time travelling story where he's living, of course, in the time of post-industrial revolution, but in America, it's in the new America, just, just after the Civil War. So his, his industrialization is taking, taking over, but there's still rural, traditional America. So there's this, this complex dealing with the modern world. And then this person gets thrown from that into the court of King Arthur, which is pre-modern. But he has all the knowledge of modernity and he has to live in this. And it's, it's just a, a silly story, so to speak. But there's a real important tale in there about modernity, about technology, also about where we've gone in society and where we've gone in life. And it's very relevant to the Internet, for example. But at the same time, it's a great piece of literature and it's a really good story. <laughs> That's probably my favourite. But I like Huckleberry Finn as well and Tom Sawyer and they're all okay. great stories. And I guess as we come towards the end, um, how do you think you'll cope being alone in the solitude, I guess, when you're cast away? To be honest, I don't think I will. <laughs> We're made to be with people. I was alone last year with just a little guy and I can't do it again. Um, I really appreciate my friends and my family even more. I, I've always loved my family, but they have just meant so much to me. My brothers, my sister, my in-laws, my, my brother-in-law in particular, they just mean so much to me. And my, and my friends, I, I couldn't live without them. Mm. And, and I wouldn't, I would die if I was cast away. I would live a little bit, but Allah will take me, I don't think, for very long after that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and which... Um... Is there a book, either of something that you've mentioned or another book that you would take with you? Of all of the eight, I think I think probably Kodkafani il Morobi. Yeah, that poem, it means so much to me. And it, it's about being alone. And it's talking you directly to your Lord. Um, and he, he, the, Imam al-Haddad has, has said it in such a way, it's, it's inspired. You know, he, he said everything that I ever wanted to say, but in much more beautiful ways than I could say it. And that's why I think if it was anything, that would probably be Because, of course, you said I couldn't take yeah. the Quran. Otherwise, it would have yeah. been the Quran, obviously. And uh, you can take a luxury item with you. Is there anything that you would take? Um, I don't really know. I don't think... That would make life a bit easier. I don't really know. I don't, I don't think I would need anything or want anything. I, I, I can't... Maybe maybe what I've learnt is that the dunya doesn't really mean anything, and I would make do with what I've got. Because the thing about luxury, that one thing I have learnt, going back to what you'd asked before, is to me everything is over this year has brought me joy and has become a luxury. Because it's almost as if everything was taken from me, and now everything that I've got, 
means a great deal. And so if you have a coconut, it's a luxury item. A bar of soap, wow, it's a luxury item. Chocolate, it's a luxury item. Everything's a luxury item when you... And that's why I, I hope I can continue feeling. Okay, okay Sheikh Abdulaziz, thank you very much for your time. No, no, Jazakumullah, thank you very much. And it was a very good um, idea and a great, great thing you've done, I think. Jazakumullah. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Gems. 